Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, journalists Colin Hogg and Russell Brown spark up a lively conversation about Hogg's book The High Road, chronicling his adventures on the west coast of the USA exploring legalised cannabis. Uh, kia ora koutou, uh, I am Russell Brown and as you heard Mark say, my specialist subject is drugs, <laughs> uh, which amuses my friends no end, but it's actually true. Uh, I'm also a recovering music journalist, which um, possibly makes me the perfect person to talk to Colin about his book, The High Road. Um, <clears throat> I'd, I'd actually, I'd heard tell of you a long time before I met you, Colin. Really? Yeah, he was, one, he was one of the high priests who would write about music on the music pages of the evening paper. Um, this, of course, was back when we had evening papers and music pages and newspapers. Um, since then, Colin and I have, um, as we were discussing in the green room beforehand, both been each other's editors. Uh, the difference was that he paid me and I didn't pay him. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I, I wrote for the in-flight mag that Colin uh, edited, and Colin wrote uh, in an issue of a magazine I edited called Planet that I'm still really proud of, the, the weed issue, uh, which was, uh, I think, 1993, and it had an amazing cover. It had stuff by Rick Bryant and various other people. And uh, we were quite confident uh, in 1993 that the end of uh, marijuana prohibition was just around the corner. Surely it could not be sustained, but um, turns out it was. Um, this book, Colin, um, I, I really enjoyed it. And it also struck me that, that despite the title, The High Road, and all the publicity and all the things people have been asking you about in interviews, it's not just about cannabis, is it? it it's, it's a book about um, friendship, about an old friend dying, about your glimpse of the new western edge of the US. Did you know it was going to be all those things when you started? No, I was just looking to do another road trip with a reason, really. I was looking for a reason. And I think I gave my publisher three different ideas, and this was number three, and I think I wrote a paragraph. I started writing the second paragraph, and it tailed off. So I, I could see it was a good idea. <laughs> Why? Why was that? <laughs> I, 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 I was nervous of it, I suppose. My favourite idea was to retrace the journeys of Robert Louis Stevenson. <laughs> so um, they didn't go for that. There, was, there wasn't much of a New Zealand angle. There was a slight New Zealand angle. The reason Robert Louis Stevenson moved to Samoa is he went to a talk by a New Zealand High Commissioner in London. And that inspired him, but there was no... So they came to the third one and went for this idea, which uh, was driven by my desire to go for a trip a road trip in America and uh, my frustration at the fact that cannabis remains illegal in this country and in America of all countries it is, um, which in many ways seems one of the least liberal countries in the world, it's becoming increasingly available. So, I mean the, the irony of it is, um, given that it's a weed tourism book, it, we, we get to literally get to page 100 before you manage to find a joint. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Were you starting to get worried by that point? I just wanted things to build up, you know, like a dirty movie. <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. Um, first of all, the call is San Francisco, and you were, you were, 
I mean, I've been there, uh, and I've seen the same thing. The tourist hotels were right next to human degradation. Yeah. You, know, you, call, you, you described it as zombies, and it kind of is. Yeah, yeah. There are homeless people on the streets there who uh, are crazy and in need, and you know, it, it, it is, it's kind of an alarming sight, isn't it? Yes. I mean, most of them are so whacked that they had a home, they'd never find the front door, to be honest. Um, yeah, it was shocking. It, it was like being in The Walking Dead or something. But um, it transpires that San Francisco is like, it's almost like a Hollywood for the homeless of America. They, they travel to it. It's, it. it's more liberal. It treats people in those circumstances more fairly, it seems. It's bizarre. Hmm. But America's bizarre. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and as you proceeded up the West Coast on, on the trip, I found it quite fascinating because you were describing an America that's maybe a little different than, than the one that we are used to hearing about in the news, certainly since Trump arrived as president. We, we, um, this, this isn't Trump's America, is it? Well, some of it is. It um, you know, we've probably all got friends who go to California or Los Angeles, all those sorts of places for holidays and, you know, perhaps they're nice middle-class people and their friends there are nice middle-class people and they get the impression that everything's nice and liberal and, you know, that's California. But Bruce, my driver, and I spend a lot of time in the sports bars of California and Oregon and Washington State and the rednecks are there. I think we hung with a lot of Trump supporters, to be honest. So it is tiered. You know, the overwhelming thing is of, a, of an era of America that is, is liberal. Hmm. I sometimes got the impression in the book that you were thinking about the past and looking at the future, because there are these places, places like Portland, where um, you know, everyone's got a hipster beard and, and drinks craft beer and the weed is legal. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, I guess I was a bit. And I took a ghost with me. I, I wrote a book two years ago called Going... South that was another road trip with a reason that was based on the fact that I'd, I'd long had a desire to write a book about where I grew up, Southland and Otago, um, and I could never convince the publisher that there was something in this they saw it as a regional book. Um, but then my oldest friend, a guy called Gordon McBride, quite a famous journalist, a television journalist, um, told me he had terminal cancer. And our way of handling this was to take a road trip back down where we grew up together. Um, and in the process of writing this book, I talked to Gordon about it, and he wasn't sure it was a great idea, but he could see I was enthusiastic about it, so he encouraged me, and at one point he hoped he could come. But in the middle of it all, he um, died. Uh, so he was kind of with me on the trip. So there's a lot of then and now and, yeah. Yeah, there's a very strong sense that he's with you on the trip. Yeah. Gordon was my um, first... Um, chief reporter. Oh, I see. In 1981, my first year as a cadet journalist. Yeah, he's a phenomenon, Gordon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, you had history with your your eventual travelling companion, Bruce, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's kind of a mysterious figure because you don't really say who he is. You say that his wife writes erotica. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. She does under another name. I've never read any of it. She won't let any of us see it. It's online erotica. But uh, good honour, she's doing very well. Um, there's a big market for it, apparently, online, for the ladies. Um, 
Yeah, Bruce is mysterious because he is mysterious and, you know, he likes to stay in the shadows. He's in the shadows here, actually, as I speak. But um, we worked together on the uh, Auckland Star in the, from, in the 70s and we've stayed friends ever since. And he's a steady guy and I know he can drive on the wrong side of the road, so he seemed... <laughs> and also you do these sorts of books and you want someone with you. You want a sparring partner. Um, yeah, so... There's quite a good running joke in the book about you guys being mistaken for an elderly gay couple. Yeah. (laughs) Well, after a while you realise you're fitting in quite nicely and it's California after all and it's, you know, and you don't feel left out and everyone's pleased to see you and sometimes you check into the hotel and they think you've just got one room, you know, there's misunderstandings. But it, it, it works, it's a good cover. Why did so many people think that? <laughs> is there something, you know, do, do men not take trips together anymore? Do you know? Does that say something about friendship? I don't know. I really don't know. No, I don't. But anyway, it was good cover, but we never got under the covers, so that's the <laughs> <main> thing. <laughs> um, tell me about the first joint that you did manage to get, because it was a struggle, and you, you, you actually had to ask a stranger, didn't you? Yeah, Which is I, ironic, given that you were going to the place where you could Well, just I went to California knowing that it was medicinal there and sort of, I, 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 you know, you go to these um, marijuana assessment clinics and they made it clear straight away that you had to be a, a citizen of California to get medicinal marijuana. It's extremely liberal. It's very easy to get if you are um, a citizen. You just need to feel a bit anxious and you've lost your appetite, perhaps. Um, <laughs> So I couldn't, I couldn't get any, and my original idea with the book was to stick within the law. You know, I was going to, if, where it's legal in America, I'll, I'll buy some and have some. But by the time we got to Northern California, I was getting a bit pissed off with all this. And we stayed the night in a place called Mendocino, quite a famous sort of old western town. And um, the next morning, after quite a heavy night on the craft beer, which has THC in it, you know, Russell. Hops. Hops. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. That's why people love those pale ales with 32 hops in them, believe me. I, we were walking out the road and I spotted these two hippie guys across the road, you know, beards and backpacks and things, and one of them was smoking what I thought was a joint, and I thought, I'm just going to go and ask. And as I walked towards him, I realised he was just smoking a roll-your-own-cigarette but I asked anyway, I said, you know, do you know where a guy could get a bit of weed around here? And the guy looks at his watch and said, oh, it won't be coming into town until about 10.30. And I said, oh, we're about to hit the road. And he says, oh, how much are you looking for? And pulled something out and, yeah, I broke the law. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a nice I'm way sorry, to America. It's a nice way to meet people. <laughs> it is a nice way to meet people. I think they thought I was an undercover cop. But Has that ever happened before? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, so when did you finally get to um, become a customer of, of this new legal weed industry? And what, what, you know, what was the first place you went to? Oregon. Oregon. We drove north. California is very long. Very, very long. But I had Googled the first town across the border in Oregon that had you know, a marijuana shop. And it was a place called Brookings. Ugly little place. Quite hard to find the shop. Luckily, I had the address, Railroad Street, I think it was, which, surprisingly, was next to the railroad. Um, They're not allowed to advertise, so they're very sort of semi-hidden. 
So we pulled up and went in, and it was bizarre. It was very strange. You go into the shop, it's beautifully presented. There's bongs and things in cupboards. It's a shop in two parts. And in the first part, you register. And then in the second part of the shop, out the back, that's where all the weed and stuff is kept. But I'm standing in the shop looking around, a nice young woman, nicely presented, comes up and says, would you like to buy some marijuana? And I, I, no one had ever really said that to me either, you know. <laughs> and at first I didn't know what to say, and I said, well, yes. And she said, medicinal or recreational? And my driver, Bruce, has a damaged knee. I said, well, he's medicinal, I'm probably more recreational. And then you get taken out the back and introduced to your bud tender, bud tender, <laughs> who shows you the goods. And there's goods for Africa. There's weed, there's edibles, there's bandages for Bruce's knee. There's everything you could have. Was the sheer choice daunting? Because that, yeah. that, that's completely different from the experience of anyone who um, uses cannabis in New Zealand. Yeah. You don't have, what have any you got? choice. You, you, you have what the guy selling it's got. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's rubbish and sometimes it's hard to walk, you know, yeah. Whereas in the US, in these dispensaries, you actually get, um, you get the choice of, of, of effect. Did, did you find that the different strains did what they said on the label? You know, was, the, was there a, a, a zippy energetic one and oh, yeah. a nighttime one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blue Dreams, that was a good last one at night one. Um, yeah, but also... When you buy it and you're given it, it comes in, you know, like a, a medicine bottle and there's a label on it. It's, it's like getting something from the chemist. Your name's across the bottom. It's got the percentage of THC, which is the hallucinogenic thing, and the percentage of CBD, which is the medicinal side of it. So Bruce's one was high CBD, low THC, and I was the other way around. So you do know what you're getting to some extent, whereas here people never know what they're getting. Mm. And you also got some bandages for Bruce's knee, which I, mm. I found quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah. They're, yeah. They're ba basically, they're, they're bandages impregnated with, is it THC and CBD? Or? No, it's just CBD, so you won't get stoned from your bandage. <laughs> but it works. I, I, I broke my wrist a year or so ago, and it's always given me a lot of pain. And I slapped one of these things on, and it seriously took the pain away for probably 12 hours. But it's $18 a bandage, so, you know, you don't want to swathe yourself in them. <laughs> Did the culture of these places, of these stores, change from state to state? Because they all have subtly different yeah. laws. Yeah, this little Oregon, it was this two-shop, very strict thing. We got to Washington State, Seattle, it was just like they, you know, you had to, we had to provide a passport at the front door to prove our age. But inside it was a supermarket of... Products hmm. and, and to amazing products. The technology, little disposable electronic vape pens, um, the edible stuff. It's all organic, you know. Um, cookies, oh, unbelievable. And you also have to say, in the, in the book, you, you quite quickly encounter what I've always thought might be the potential problem with weed tourism is that there's actually only so much you want you want to consume. It's, it's strong. True. It's true. Have I come all this way for this? I mean, as I say, it, you know, it, it, it was a reason for a road trip, but yeah, and there was a point. We initially went, I thought we could just go and do this one road trip, go to San Francisco, drive north to Seattle. We got the train back. That was great, to San Francisco. 
but I came home. I sort of felt I didn't have enough material. I did some more research, and, and it seemed Colorado was the place to go to investigate the cannabis tourism industry, which is enormous over there now. Um, over a billion dollars last year, just Colorado. And that's just the cannabis tourism industry. Um, so we went there on a cannabis vacation package, which we booked. Um, I mean, it's really it's sort of Disneyland in a way. Do you, do you say that at the border? Purpose of visit? <laughs> the guy asked me. <laughs> he said, you're going to Denver, you know. What are you going to do there? I thought, and I had, you know, I'd actually typed out a, uh, a schedule and it was, if he'd opened that bag and looked, it would have been pretty clear why I was going there. Um, I said, oh, I'm very fond of craft beer and I hear Colorado is the centre of the universe for craft beer. He sort of looked a bit quizzical. Enjoy the beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How, how was the, the tourism experience? Because that's... Uh, uh, it's what you described sounded quite intense at times. I mean, you were doing you know, the sushi and joint rolling class. That's really mm. fun. Yeah. Um, and you were quite good at rolling sushi. I was. Well, after rolling the joint, I became incredibly good at making sushi. <laughs> and I managed to make the sushi, you know, with the rice on the outside, which, you know, I, I was astonished. And I was starving by then, too. It was good. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I booked this vacation package and it included um, accommodation. They wouldn't tell you the name of the hotel you were staying in. I didn't really realise why at first until we got there and realised it was a hotel in a major chain that these, you know, these hotels must sell off rooms to these cannabis vacation companies that have sprung up in Denver especially. Um, so you book into your hotel, and once they know your... There was a company called 420 Tours. The 420 is the date, or 24, um, that recreational cannabis was made legal in Colorado. It's become a synonym for dope now. Hmm. Let's pop outside for a 420. But you check into the hotel, and they give you a bag when you check in and you take it up to your room and you open it up and it's a great big electronic vape you can plug into the wall. There's coupons, you pop round the corner to a little weed store and buy some and you can smoke in the hotel. I sort of wonder when we checked in why there was a major candy stand right next to reception <laughs> until later one night I realised why it was there. Um, and I booked three or four uh, things to do, vacation-themed things, a cannabis cooking course, the um, sushi and joint rolling uh, class, and uh, the Buds and Suds bus tour. Do you, do you want to actually, you've, is, you've got that bookmarked, haven't you, the Buds and Suds? Yeah, yeah, that's why that I nearly lost my life, actually. That's, it's memorable. <laughs> makes you dry smoking, it makes you dry talking about smoking. <laughs> <laughs> We went on this Buds and Suds bus tour. Buds and Suds, the Suds was beer, craft beer, but that was on the bus. So we got on this bus and we were driven to Boulder with a group of other cannabis tourists, smoking furiously all the way down the freeway. And uh, we visited a, uh, a cannabis factory where they grow the plants, 10,000 plants. They do, at a time, they do... Uh, they have six harvests a year, the 
extraordinary. And then we were taken to a uh, dispensary to buy some of the goods. By the time we were heading back to Denver, things really started to get just a little bit unhinged. We'd been seated with the only other two older people on the tour, and they were a, a farming couple from Kansas or somewhere, and they'd gone really just for a different sort of holiday experience, I think, <laughs> which... <laughs> anyway, they were nice people. Sort of, I didn't understand anything they were saying, but... <clears throat> somewhere south of Boulder, the demon strike... I can see them flapping around out there as I gaze at the darkening sky and I suddenly feel that my end is nigh. It's something to do with the babbling maniacs on the bus, the huge silent farmer sitting next to me, his enormous side resting against my more insubstantial frame and facing backwards is starting to make me feel travel sick. Also, they've lowered the lights on the bus and turned on the fucking party lights so when I try to talk to Bruce or Brenda across the table, they have alarming colours playing across their faces and upper bodies. Just looking at them is spinning me out. I turn to Steve, but he's monosyllabic, so I give up trying to be interesting. I think he went off me a bit after Brenda asked me what I did for a job, and she came over all fascinated that I was a writer. I have to stare out the bus window but the sun's going down and the landscape is relentlessly flat, brown and outstandingly dreary. I'm not a happy traveller. All that THC inside me is peaking in an awful, relentless surge. Any moment I might leap up and run gibbering down the aisle or just turn and bite Steve suddenly on his huge cheek, which is right next to me. So close. Too close. On tighter examination, his cheek is a rough and stubbled thing, so I turn back to the fading view out the bus window. We're caught in a mass of vehicles, two lanes to the left, two to the right. The surging freeway traffic has to stop regularly at crossings to let commuter trains pass. I look down at the nearest car just below us. There's a woman driving, maybe her daughter next to her. She has blue hair, is 12 or so. She leans out the window and looks right up at me, it seems, despite the tinted windows, and blows a big bubblegum bubble. That might be what steadies me, because by the time the bus gets back, gets us back to the 420 Tours office, I'm relatively sane again. We say our farewells to Steve and Brenda from Nebraska. Brenda's very happy. The guy at the growing facility shared lots of his secrets with her, and she says there'll be no looking back now. Back downtown, it's only seven o'clock or so, though it feels a lot later after what we've been through. You weren't very happy back there on the bus, were you, Cole, says Bruce. No, could you see that? Yeah, but there was nothing I could do. Brenda wouldn't stop talking, and did you notice how those mirror ball lights went mad every time I moved? I was trying to stay as still as possible. I think we'll mark that one down as another one of those once-in-a-lifetime experiences. Mm. Yeah, it sounded awful. Were there, were there any other times that the weed spoiled the weed tourism like that? Because that's kind no, of happened there. You were too no, stoned, no, weren't you? No, I don't think so. Not really, no. <laughs> um, did that experience in, in Colorado lead you to any conclusions about weed tourism? Because people have talked about it for New Zealand as a potential yeah. know, add-on to our tourist industry. 
I mean, it's a very, it's a light-hearted sort of a book, as I hope you can tell. But um, you know, there was a purpose to it, which was really to try and get some impression of what might happen if it, when it happens here. I mean, I went there thinking recreational cannabis shops. Just you know, I had issues in my mind about the age limit because in America everything's R21, which seems a lot more sensible, especially with this than R18. Um, but after Denver, I just thought the vacation, the tourist thing was just a little crazy for me. And I just kept thinking what it would do to us here. There's just something in the New Zealand psyche that I'm not sure would handle it very sensibly. Um, you know, with the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbits and all of, a lot of tourists come here for that. And I thought we might turn into a stoned Hobbiton in some sort of way. <laughs> so I really think the way to go you know, not that I'm a politician or anything, but I just think the way to go is um, the very liberal medicinal and the right to grow a few plants in your backyard, kind of like heritage tomatoes, and, and ban all retail, hit the criminals, you know, shut that side of it down, because that really is a major issue in this country. And I've long felt that people talk about cannabis being a gateway drug, and perhaps it is for some people, but the gateway that frightens me the most is the kid who goes to the tinny house and the guy tells him, there's no weed today, mate, try this. You know, that's what scares the hell out of me. You're still not going to entirely avoid that if, you, if, if it's just medical and home-growing, though, are you? If it's still illegal to supply, then only the criminals are going to do it. Yep, yep. But all the resources that are spent on chasing this will, can go into that. And not only that, it will bring this into the light and make it as it should be, small. You know, there are people who are going to have issues with cannabis, and there are people who have issues with it, and we have to be careful around young people. But, there are, you know, we've got bigger issues with alcohol in this country than we have with this. I'd rather be in a room full of stone people than a room full of angry drunks any day. Hmm. Yeah, I, I did remind you um, before we started that uh, you, you enjoy the bars of Grey Lynn these days. Um, mm. You were against Grey Lynn going wet, going wet. Yeah, I didn't remember in the that. 90s. <laughs> what was that about? You thought it would be house values or something, wasn't it? <clears throat> yeah. What is that thing about us that, that makes you think maybe we wouldn't handle it well? Because I know what you mean. We do yeah. seem to have a binge culture. See, when I was over there, I, it, I mean, you smelt it on the streets about people perhaps be sitting in a corner having a quiet joint or sharing it with their friends. But it wasn't like people were stumbling around on the streets with big doobies in their hands, sort of, you know. But I think that there is something in us where people maybe will be doing that, you know. I, I'm just, I, I think we're crazier people than we think we are. And maybe the Americans are less crazy than we think they are. Hmm. You know, I mean, this is a country where you can carry a gun and carry weed. It's such an odd... Thing. Yeah, I must say one thing I did notice, I was there last year um, for a, a drug policy conference at the UN and probably about 200 metres from the UN I walked past someone smoking a joint and what struck me was how great it smelt. Mm. It's not, I mean, there's this, increasingly this myth that New Zealand has, you know, world-class marijuana, it's just not true. There's science going into it now. It's perfumed. It's yeah, yeah. No, it's amazing. And the range available, and the names they have, the colours from purple through to blue, green, yellow. Um, at the, It's also extremely heavily regulated. 
and it's a huge provider of jobs, oddly enough. In, uh, in Boulder, when we went to the, the factory where they grow it, these 10,000 plants, each of those plants has a tag on it with a code, an electronic code on it, and once a month the inspectors come through and they beep every one of those plants and they follow it through its whole life. They have an estimate on how much product's going to come off each plant. They supervise the, uh, the destruction of the remains of the plant. Those plants, I mean, one plant could be called Russell Brown. I mean, they should, they're people, almost, these things. And, yeah, the range of, of, of stuff, they're tweaking it, you know, it's... And it is actually kind of interesting because in Colorado that the, that whole very well regulated system was inherited from their medical cannabis system. Mm. So they were actually quite they were good at controlling all this before they yep. went to recreational. So maybe there's a lesson for New Zealand in that. Yeah, and they tweak the rules too, so that you know the purveyors can never quite be sure what's happening next. Not in a major way, but for instance in Denver until a couple of years ago, the main tourist dragon town was called the Green Mile because it was just endless cannabis stores. And then the local authorities tweaked things so that each store had to be 50 metres or 100 metres apart, so the whole thing flew apart. They're about to introduce what they call smoke bars there. These are like, you know, alcoholic bars without alcohol where you can go and smoke weed and drink juice or probably eat a lot of cookies, I imagine. Um, yeah, so they're constantly sort of moving the, you know, the pieces on the chessboard around. You um, vaped quite a bit. Of, well, you vaped oil when you were there as well. Did, you, did, did that? Did you decide you liked that more or less? Bruce liked that. I, I still like a joint, to be honest. Really, you know. But they have these terrific little, yeah, these vape pens, disposable. They're thirty bucks, one hundred and fifty measured doses. Cannabis oil, 10 milligrams in each puff, um, and they're disposable. 150 puffs in that thing, 30 bucks, pretty amazing, really. Yeah. Technology took my breath away. Yeah, it is remarkable, isn't it? <coughs> the, I mean, the place you didn't get to is Washington, D.C., which has uh, a system more like, I think, what you'd like to see mm. in New Zealand, in that um, you can grow your own, you cannot sell it, you can give it away. Yeah, you can give it away, yep. Which is kind of, oddly enough, that was the Republicans at Congress managed to squash the retail sale. It's bizarre. And they've ended it? up with this hippie paradise of... Yeah, I know. In Washington, D.C. ...free the weed. Yeah, yeah, it is strange. Um, one of the other things that struck me was just how much you were allowed to buy in the shops in Denver per day. You could buy an ounce at a time. It seemed an awful lot, you know. The prices are controlled, too. It probably sells for about half the average price here. There's a lot of celebrity... And, and it's getting cheaper. A lot of celebrity endorsement. You know, Willie Nelson, you can get Willie's Weed. He's got a whole line of pre-rolled things. There's, you know, Snoop Dogg, all those people. They do papers and they do the whole... The Marley family as well, obviously. Which, <laughs> and the interesting thing about that, you know, once you start getting to the level of commercial endorsements, it starts looking like the thing that every drug policy expert I've ever spoken to has been worried about, big marijuana, mm. like big tobacco and big alcohol. Yeah. Do, you think, do you think it's going there and is that a concern? It's not going there in America because it's, you know, federally illegal. So each of these states is kind of almost in a ring of smoke. Whereas New Zealand, it will be, you know, federally controlled, I suppose. I think that's possibly where... 
Yeah, it'd be good if it was just legal in Southland. It'd probably that that would work for the tourism <laughs> down there. Yeah. Now I think about it, I could go south again. <laughs> what do you think will happen here around cannabis? I think they're going to drag their heels all the way up the front path, which goes for a hundred miles. I think you know. I think we have. I think we're priests preaching to us about sex. I think that's what the situation is in this country. They seem very frightened of the whole thing. And I'm frightened of it, but I'm frightened of it because of the criminals running it. You know, I want it to be normalised. I want the health issues to be brought in and, and, and looked at and, and, and brought under some sort of control. And you, you can only do that by bringing it into the light. Um, on Friday, I was at a book launch in, in Wellington, and Peter Dunn kindly agreed to take your place. And um, I asked him, but he thought perhaps five years there might be generally medicinal available. Right now, it's really just for people in extreme situations. It's also outrageous. It's all imported. That's the other thing. There's huge potential for farming mm. with this. And... You know, and he argued, well, that we've got such a small population, but we could, other countries export it. Yeah, no, I, th I think we could. Yeah. Um, how was Peter done, anyway? He, was, he, he, he disappeared little, very suddenly. Well, he was a little melancholy, I thought. Oh, well, I must, oh. Well, no, don't be mean about Pete. No, I, I like him. He had nice manners. Beautifully tied <laughs> thing. Um, but it must be strange for him. He's suddenly on the sidelines, you know? He's suddenly out of the game and watching it, and it's such a game this time. Um, the election. I got the impression he got a little frisson out of talking to you as well. It made him look a little bit rock and roll. Yeah, ha like, has there been anyone since the book's been out who's reacted very badly to it, who thinks you're irresponsible? No. When I was in the middle of writing it, I, I was at a dinner party in Arrowtown, of all places, and one of the guests at the dinner party was, was a high court judge that transpired, and, you know, they... People always say, what do you do? I'm a High Court judge. What do you do? I write. What do you write? You know, this and that. What are you working on? Oh, this book about, you know, cannabis. And he really got stuck into me. You know, he said he'd seen situations in his court and he had a very strong view on it. Um, and, uh, you know, he did touch a nerve ending about it, but I'd still argue that we need to bring this in. And the people who have trouble with it are going to have trouble with it anyway. And I think we've got more chance of helping them. Well, and the interesting thing is in the US, uh, and in particular since uh, the first states legalised, teen use has gone down. Yeah, it's not cool. You know, it's the, the baby boomers, are, you know, it's people like... Old gay couples like you and Bruce. Well, <laughs> old gay couples like me and Bruce and, you know, people from Point Chev, those <laughs> sorts of people... You know, it, it isn't seen as cool. You know, like I say, we could turn it into heritage tomatoes. It'll be old Uncle Bill down the road who grows the best weed and, you know, it, it, it's not cool. <sighs> Intriguing. Um, I think it's probably time for some questions now. Do we have... Well, while we're doing that, um, while we're sorting that out, how was Kim Hill? Well, got, Kim was good. I, I... You got to play some music. Yeah, I got to play some music. I played music from the book. The thing about Kim Hill is, you know she's in the room, you haven't seen her yet, and then the moment the door opens and you put in 
there with her, and it's a tiny, creepy little studio, you know, that one in Wellington, and she's there being so bloody Kim Hill right in front of you, and it's sort of, Christ, it's Kim Hill, you know. No, she was great. She was sweet. Hmm. Ish. Ish. You ready for questions? Right. Over the back there. I'll run around. Hold on. Coming, coming. Oh, oh you can just yell, Max. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, it's not really a question. I just agree with you with the gateway thing. I've always said this, that the gateway is the young people going to the dealer, and I have some experience with this from my past. Yeah. And, that, and I saw that back years ago, where the young people go, and what you said, the gateway is where they say, we have only we today, try this. Yeah. And of course, it's profit margin, because for the harder drugs, you have to pay more money. And so that's all their, their seed business. So I agree entirely with you on that point. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And the synthetic stuff, you know, that's on the black market now, that's cheaper for them to produce. You know, all you need is some, what is it, ground-up cardboard and some fly spray. I don't know. Tea leaves. I think think you've mentioned this, Russell, in something I read recently. Synthetic cannabis is such a misnomer because most synthetic, of it isn't Synthetic cannabis. cannabis contains any one of about a dozen chemicals that act on the same receptors in the brain uh, as THC does, but they hammer those receptors. Mm. Um, so all, the, all that, that they've really got in common with, with natural cannabis is that they act on the same um, parts of the central nervous system, but they are not like um, cannabis at all. Um, we need a better name for them, but... Um, well, just synthetics. Synthetics. Yeah. yeah. Crap. Or poison, perhaps. Yes. Kia ora. Kia ora. Okay. Oh, it's interesting to hear that, it's, you know, some, some of the effects of, of, of usage, teen usage has gone down and pot's no longer cool. And the, the, the gateway point as well, a, a sort of a constellation of weird things happening. Um, uh, I just wonder, uh, I, I, I also share your antipathy towards, you know, a, a sort of a tourist culture based on this, you know, crazy hedonistic, yeah. you know, journey through Hobbiton. Um, but what's happening, I mean, there are other countries where, where they've legalised everything. So do we know what that looks like in terms of outcomes? I can answer that. Um, you're thinking of Portugal, where they haven't legalised everything, but they've decriminalised everything, so that the the first recourse is to uh, is to health services and not the courts and police, and it's worked amazingly well. Um, drug deaths and harm from all drugs has halved in Portugal in the 15 years they've done that, uh, and that's actually what Peter Dunn wanted to do that. Yeah, it's true. Um, you know, he's seen as a conservative, but there's a which is different again from. The, the capitalist model of legalising like they've done in the US, which I think it's fair to have some qualms about. Yeah. I was just wondering um, if you'd travel a little further north or if you go back to Canada, that's obviously where it's being played out at a federal level, whether both Russell and Colin have any reflections on how that's being implemented at a, at a nationwide level in terms of legalisation? Well, you probably know more than I do. Um, yeah, at the Drug Law Symposium last month, uh, in, in July, I met the former Deputy PM of Canada, who uh, is head of their legalisation task force. 
uh, who is, she's um, a conservative looking middle-aged woman um, and is, I think their take on it is probably the one that New Zealand will end up looking at. They're doing it very slowly and very cautiously and the interesting thing is they're doing it because they have a problem with youth cannabis use and whatever they were doing with prohibition was only making that worse. So they're actually doing it because they have a problem with teen smoking pot. Um, but yeah, Canada is the one that, that the rest of the liberal world will start looking at. I, I don't think we can follow Colorado. I don't necessarily think we want to. Hmm. Yeah, it is a capital. It, it's a capitalist impulse. There, it certainly is. It's money, money, and everything they talk about is the million dollars they made last year and how it's growing. Colorado is going to go on the slide because, of course, California is going recreational. Well, it has, but it'll come into effect in the new year. And, and you know, the word is in, in Denver that they're going to lose all, yeah. the, all, that, all that tourism thing is going to go to Canada, uh, yeah. to California. California. Yeah. California's the big bang, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um, what were the people like working in that industry? Oh, lovely people, you know. Because that's the impression I get. They're all, it's, it's like, you know. Happy to serve you today. Your bud tender is a... You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were all in love with what they were doing. Oh, quite a few of them were quite stoned. But, um, <laughs> but no, no, it's... And, and, you know, we're dealing with people in the tourist industry, really, too. So, no, they were... They, the thing is, because it's federally illegal in these states, it remains in the hands of entrepreneurs. But, like, they seem like the best sorts of entrepreneurs. They aren't the graspy ones... They're the ones who care about giving people a good experience, giving them quality product um, at a fair price. It's, I mean, long may that attitude last. Hmm. Was there one over here? Yes? Yeah, just wondering if you found any information on what the current state of play is with how those businesses are dealing with their income. Because I've heard that uh, they're potentially still breaking the law from a tax point of view. And you hear stories about you know, them having to ship literally millions of dollars to the bank in one go with armed guards, etc. Yeah, because it's a cash, it's a cash only business. I don't really know too much about that, but I, that's another one of those strange tweaks and strictures that you know, the authorities have put on it, just to make it legal but slightly difficult. Well, it's actually because it's, it's illegal at the federal level and they're not allowed, the, the banks are regulated at the federal level, so they make millions of dollars and aren't allowed to use banks, which is nuts. Yeah. So, yeah, it's another thing we probably don't want to copy. Yes. Oh. No, that, the, no. Uh, I think this is a very good point. The last thing we want is a... You know, you weren't allowed to grow at home. So I mean, it was, That's know, right. ...drafted into this big corporation. So you can imagine they're waiting in the shadows, you know, yeah. hmm. to start manufacturing, to start pumping out packets of pre-rolled... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Um, if anyone didn't hear that down the back, we, we, yeah, we don't want it to become big tobacco and they probably are waiting in the wings. Oddly enough, in New Zealand, you can grow tobacco at home. Marcus Lush used to. Yeah, but years ago, you, it was illegal. Right. I do, do remember mm. that, yeah. yeah. I've got uh, one over here. Uh, just, um, what was the situation with cannabis and driving in Denver? Well, or, good or question, actually, yes. Like, was it, was it legal, or did they test for it, or...? No, I believe they, they test for it. 
Um, and I just want to assure you that at no stage did my driver um, <laughs> imbibe, you know, on the day he was driving. I, I don't really believe that cannabis stays in your system in a way that impairs you in any way after 12 or 24 hours. Um, that's another thing that bugs me is just the testing system here, which is, is, is ludicrous. Mm. You, you know, I know of kids who've been kicked out of schools because they've been found to have... THC in the systems, they might have had a joint late on Friday night and they've been tested on Tuesday. Well, they're not stoned or anything like that. It's just the THC embeds it in the fat in your body, not in the liquid in your body, where alcohol goes and alcohol is expelled and THC traces stay there for longer. And surely part of the problem there is kids being kicked out of school. That does not do them any, any good at all. No, it doesn't. Yeah, we're kind of punitive about that, aren't we? Mm. Mm. Wonderful. Any other questions before we wrap up? Hey, um, oh, just before we wrap up, I want to ask Colin what he's doing next. You can do that. I'll get out of the way. Jolly good. No, I just signed up for the next book. Um, nearly 30 years ago, I, actually probably my first road trip kind of book, I wrote a book called Angel Gear mm. on the road with Sam Hunt. Um, and uh, that's a book that was supposed to be a biography, but I decided to sling it around a road trip and become Sam's road manager with sometimes disastrous consequences, but it sort of helped with the story. And we've talked and we've been approached by publishers over the years to do some sort of follow-up, and we finally agreed to do it. So that's I'm doing another book with about Sam Hunt. It'll have new poems in it. It's called Sam Hunt Off the Road. So it's not a road trip. Because he actually has been off the road, hasn't he? He's stopped yeah, touring. Yeah. yeah, he's sort of semi-retired. How yeah. is he? How is Sam? He's good. He's much the same. He's 71 now. When he turned 70, he just thought that was it. That's the end. You know, I've had my three score and ten and... I said, Jesus, you know, that's from the Bible. I mean, you know, look at the facts. You could live to be your father was 90 when he died. Your mother was nearly 90. I mean, no, no, it's all over. It's all... Anyway, so, yeah. How old are you? You're 65, eh? 66, Russell. 66. Yeah. You're, a, you're, a, you're what we used to call an old age pensioner. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be very interested to see what Winston's going to give us on the gold card, the special <laughs> extra. I, I imagine there was a quote for most of your life you never envisaged that you would be doing something like weed tourism when you were 66. No, no, but I'm very pleased that it's happened. Also, you know, I'm a baby boomer, and we, we are, you know, we're the bad, well, you know, we're the, we're the wild ones. You know, I, I don't want to stop that. So, Well, I for one hope that you never grow up, Colin. Thank you, Russ. <laughs> thank you. Please thank Colin, and read the book. Um, yeah, thank you, Colin Hogg. Thank you, Russell Brown, for a fantastic session. I was going to say it sort of took us out on a high, which would have been a terrible pun, um, but it felt more like sort of it started and took us to a really fun place, and then we kind of got really thoughtful, got thoughtful. and serious. And <laughs> yeah. I I'm at that shape of that session. It doesn't mimic anything else. I can't possibly think. And what um, a great joint this is. <laughs> <laughs> a classic West Auckland joint. Thank you, Bob Harvey, for uh, bringing us to life. Um, Thank you everyone for coming out on a Sunday afternoon um, on what, looking out the window, is turning into a wild and blustery uh, West Auckland um, afternoon. Um, it's been a great day and a great session and Russell, you brought such great knowledge to that to help 
navigate us along the road with uh, Colin, and thank you to Bruce out there in the shadows uh, for being part of making this happen. So everyone, please, another round of applause. Colin Hogg, Russell Brown. Hey, thank you. Cheers. Cheers, This has been an archival recording from the Going West Writers' Festival. Thanks for listening.